A revival is a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. It encompasses the resurfacing of a love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for His Word and His church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth and righteousness. Revival movements throughout church history have been understood as moves of God that result in waves of increased spiritual interest or renewal in the life of a church congregation or society, often with a local, national, or global effect. Proponents view revivals as the restoration of the church itself to a vital and fervent relationship with God after a period of moral decline. But are revivals biblical? If so, what does the Bible say about them? What about some of the more bizarre and controversial activity that seems to accompany many modern revival movements? Is all of that from God too? Or from someplace else? everyone to the Beards and Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Brooker, joined by my friend, Gabriel Rutledge. How are you this morning, Gabriel Rutledge? Doing well. Doing well. I, Good. Yeah. We don't, we don't get a 19, uh, 1930s radio host this morning? Mm-mm. I'm more like smooth jazz NPR. Mm. Uh, you know, I th- I think it's so funny with NPR hosts. They're always like, they talk very, very mellow and intelligent. It's almost as if to say, I'm smarter than you, and I have more money. Which neither of those are true about me. Um, for mm. this, this podcast, but you know, I just wanted to yeah. try it out—the inflection and the tone and the. Anyway, yeah. How are you doing this morning, Gabe? But I'm doing well, doing well, doing well. Uh, life updates, I think, uh, include. First of all, I want to say congratulations to Chris and Emily for tying the knot. I think I said that last episode. I don't remember. It's been crazy. Uh, you said they were uh, engaged. My mom. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. They tied the knot. Um, and then my mom and Chris's dad got married, and wow. I want to say congratulations to them. Yeah. Awesome, Nothing man. stranger feeling than walking your mom down the aisle. So, yeah. <laughs> but it was it's it was really a really cool. good. Uh, it was awesome ceremony, and yeah, my brother came to town. My older brother John came to town, and we both walked my mom down the aisle, and uh, it was it was a great time. Um, our kids were the uh, like you know they were kind of part of the wedding ceremony itself, and it was it was a great time. Beautiful beautiful awesome. ceremony. Congratulations yeah, to yeah. them. That's great. And then um, my um, my wife Stacy, she uh, she got a phone call late the other night, a very frantic phone call from a neighbor girl, and it was about ten or ten thirty at night. And uh, the neighbor girl, knowing Stacy has such a big heart for animals, um, she <laughs> watched someone desert and and dump a family of cats. Uh, somewhere in her neighborhood 
And uh, so it's like a mom cat and four kittens. So Stacy rushes out there and corrals them all and in her cat whisperer ways manages <laughs> to get them all into our car. Yeah, so a mom, cat, and four kittens are now moving into my bathroom at 11 o'clock at night. And I'm sound asleep. I have no idea any of this is going on. So the next, the next morning I come down and there's a, there's a note. I should have brought the note down. But it, the note basically said, hey, Gabe, have I told you how good of a husband you've been lately? <laughs> By the way, there's five cats in our guest bathroom. So I walk into the guest bathroom and yeah, there was, I confirmed there was five cats in our guest bathroom. Mm. Now we already have mm. two cats, you know, so, so now we're up to, to seven cats yes. yeah, immediately. Well, the story doesn't end there, Josh. Uh, mom cat, she, um, she seems like evidently bulging on her sides. Oh, like her no. tummy is like large. Oh, yeah. No. And her little her little cat teats are enlarged <laughs> and <laughs> I wish I could say that's the first time I've so, heard you use that phrase but I don't know what that is yeah well so we you know we immediately we, we canvass in the neighborhood and other places and trying to find homes for these kittens and stuff but in the, in the process mm-hmm. of doing that mama cat pops out three more kittens oh my goodness yeah so wow. um so your quiver so, is needless full. to say, it's been, yeah, it is very full, very full. Needless to say, um, so the cat count went from seven to ten. And uh, <laughs> so we've got a problem on our hands. It's like that Star Trek uh, Star Trek episode but where the uh, little things, the, I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows what I'm talking about with the Star Trek no, episode. No, they don't. Sorry. Where those things no. keep reproducing on the ship. It's like, uh, See, I'm thinking Gremlins when you said that, but that's just because my kids have Gremlin toys. But uh, that's, well, yeah, that's uh, that's either an opportunity or a problem, one way you look at it. Now, yeah, you guys oh, are not- Trouble with Tribbles. Trouble, Trouble with Tribbles is the 15th episode of the second season of the American science fiction series Star Trek. Yeah, it's like Nerd. these little things they brought on board and they just kept... They kept like reproducing like crazy, and they eventually take over the ship. And every little compartment you open in the ship in Star Trek, like these tribbles fall out, and okay. they just well, you know they. I had a girlfriend so at the time, so if, I'm not into Star Trek. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was in 1967. Doing, so if you had a girlfriend in 1967, <laughs> I'd, I don't, yeah, I wasn't even born. I was dating. I don't know. Girls. That was you were you were dodging the draft to Vietnam there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hanging out at the soda hop, soda, uh, going to the drive-in, yeah. and my, yeah. Wow. So we're well, we're trying to we're trying to always, find homes for these cats. Yeah, and, you guys have always been cat people, right? Because your mm-hmm, wife is a big yeah. cat person. Yeah. Yes. And you guys used to have a big, sweet golden retriever back in the day. I remember mm-hmm. that dog. That was a nice dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you guys don't have so, a dog now. It's just cats, right? Just cats. Yeah, the cat cat population has just like like done this mm. all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I understand we're doing like a good deed by finding these cats' homes and not leaving them out to be uh, torn apart by roaming stray dogs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really need to find homes for them, and I say we really need to find homes for them. So if you're listening to this and you would like a very limited edition uh, 
kitten from one of the hosts of the Beers and Bible mm. podcast. Will I will personally. Um, wait, yeah, here's what I'll do. I'll get a tattoo gun and we will tattoo our logo <laughs> onto the h- hind end of one of these cats. And mm. I'll actually shave mm-hmm. the fur off a little bit and then, and then yeah. tattoo Beers and Bible logo. That seems humane. And uh, yeah, no, I'm. I'm I'm willing to do whatever it takes, um, and I'll mail it to you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just uh, we'll mail it to you, and you can just you can just email me, and uh, you get your limited edition <laughs> beers and Bible kitten. <laughs> like yeah. people get people people do mugs and T-shirts and stickers, and mm-hmm. I think we sh- we could we could do living kittens. organisms like Absolutely. a cat. Yeah, kittens. You get a, you get a beers and Bible cat. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Well, best of luck to you in giving cats away. We, um, our cat that we actually really love, he found us about this time last year because we would not consider ourselves cat people. We're dog people. But our cat just kind of found us and was like, hey, you, you're mine. And we're like, okay. And then uh, we went on vacation in March and we'd never really known like how to, he's an outside cat. We don't let him inside. And so somebody said, just leave food for him and leave enough throughout the week. So we got one of those like self-timing little feeder things. So we did, and we came back, and he was gone. And we're like, oh, no. Like hmm. The kids were like asking about him. And so at church, Aiden, my oldest, started asking for prayer for his little cat to come back. And in his <laughs> Sunday school class, there's a little girl that lives on our road and she went and told her mom, she's like, Aiden was asking about his cat. And we think we've seen the cat down at the neighbor's house. And uh, so sure enough, this little girl's mom called Jenny and was like, hey, I think your cat's at the neighbor's house. And so Jenny loads up the hmm. kids and uh, drives down the neighbor. And there's our cat just hanging out at a neighbor's house. He had adopted another family while we were gone. He was just like, yeah, you guys aren't feeding me? Well, I'll go to the, and so they, they named him Susan. And, um, hmm. so he's a him, but because we got him fixed, I guess they thought he was a her, but anyway, hmm. that's our cat. So we can't leave so, him for too long or he'll just be like, yeah, I'm done with you guys. I'm gonna go find another family. So that's what we learned from that. Was he a boy, a boy cat named Sue? <laughs> yes, he was. At, it was a boy named Sue. As in the famous Johnny Cash song. Yes. Well, enough of that. Let's talk about our topic today. So, our topic today is all about revival. And um, Gabe and I both come from similar church backgrounds. We both met at a historically Pentecostal undergraduate institution of higher learning. And something that we would hear about, I would say, almost on a weekly basis in our classes and chapel services, and especially spring spiritual emphasis week and fall spiritual emphasis week, which they called it fall revival, I believe. Is that right? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. Um, Fall convocation or spiritual. Anyway, it was for better or for worse. It was a series of revival services, but we would hear this word revival all the time. We were always told about the Azusa street revival. That was a revival we were, I mean, that was the birth of the Assemblies of God, which was the denomination that was the uh, 
you know, the, the school that we went to, um, we heard talk about the Brownsville revival, which was an Assemblies of God church in the northern part of Florida. So we were in kind of central South Florida in an Assemblies of God college. So, of course, Brownsville would have been connected with us. And then uh, right after we graduated, there was a revival of, of sorts. Some people were calling it a revival. We'll talk about it if it actually was or not, called the Lakeland Revival, which was in the town that our college was in. And so it's very, very interesting when you're around that term a lot and you see that term getting thrown around to sit back and ask the question later in life, okay, what actually is revival? What does the Bible say about it? And um, maybe there were some things we saw that were called revival that maybe weren't. And so what we're going to be doing the next four episodes is really talking about this And today we're just going to lay a a framework, a foundation for this concept of revival, the definitions for revival. And then we're going to do an episode on the First and Second Great Awakenings, those historical revivals kind of in the history of the U.S. We're going to do an episode on uh, the Azusa Street Revival and the Jesus People. So two very, very, very important revivals kind of in the history of understanding certain denominations today. And then we're going to do an episode on kind of modern Pentecostal revival, so the Toronto outpouring, the Brownsville revival, and then um, that Lakeland revival that I mentioned earlier. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where we're headed. But uh, Gabe, you grew up in church. You grew up, your dad was an Assemblies of God minister. So what kind of word associations did you mm-hmm. have with this term revival? Oh, <laughs> I mean, honestly... Uh, revival for me growing up always meant that I was going to find myself in a long church service throughout the week, every weeknight. Um, mm. It was usually like this pre, pre-planned, maybe week-long or four or five-day-long pre-planned uh, event where an outside evangelist preacher would come in, and he'd be sort of a firebrand kind of individual that would mm-hmm. be extremely uh, extremely charismatic and... and um, uh, you know, hellfire, brimstone kind of situation. And um, yeah, it usually meant that I was going to be at church late every night um, right. from from 7 to 9.30 or something. And uh, mm-hmm. it was it was few and far between. That's um, mainly like kind of up in the, in, in Northwest Florida and kind of the old, more traditional culture of the Assemblies of God. Um, that would be a thing, a yearly thing. You would have a yearly revival. And you right. would bring in an outside evangelist, someone who is specialized in doing these sorts of revival meetings, and and yeah, that that's that's my association, sadly, with it. But um, right. Did, yeah. So, what about you? What's yours? Well, it's kind of similar. My mom was a worship coordinator, and so she would sing at a lot of um, Church of God, <clears throat> Church of God, which is a Pentecostal denomination, Church of God camp meetings, and so their camp meetings were revivals essentially outdoor intense mm-hmm. so there was that and i remember going to those and those were not those were more just events and it kind of felt like it was more for the churches themselves um mm. but we started going to kind of more of a um i'd say charismatic so like a little bit different than like the the pentecostal church like a almost like a vineyard charismatic kind of third wave charismatic church in the early to mid nineties. And there were a lot of people in that church that were talking about going to Toronto 
And as a kid, I'm like, okay, mm. what is in Toronto, right? There's some place in Canada. And they would take whole trips up Toronto. You know, they would be people from the church. Hey, we're going to go to Toronto and see what's happening to Toronto. And of course, you know, now understand they were talking about the Toronto outpouring revival at the Toronto Blessing Fellowship, um, which was, you know, this worldwide, um, you know, what what some folks call a revival of people from the Vineyard Movement. You know, guys like John Wimber and um, Randy Clark, and um, yeah, so all the and so I remember hearing about that and people talking about stuff that happened and you know crazy manifestations and prophetic words and things like that. And I remember as a kid going, "Man, that's that's wild. That's crazy." You know, so kind of hearing about it in the mystique of like getting in a van full of people from your church and taking this pilgrimage to a place where there's this like mighty outpouring of the spirit and presence of God. There was like a mystique around it. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, did you, you were, yeah. you grew up in Northwest Florida. I mean, that was right next to the Brownsville revival. Did, did you guys have any connection with that? Yeah, I went to it a, a couple times. Um, mm-hmm. attended it. Um, I was I was younger. I was maybe thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old. I think I was I think I was thirteen or fourteen. Um, yeah, I, I remember that well. Um, you know that our, I remember our youth group coordinated a trip over there, um, and we attended it. But yeah, um, in the area in which I grew up, though, revival meant, um, like I said, they were going to bring in an outside evangelist. It was planned out. Um, mm-hmm. and it was a way for you to to finally get those unsaved loved ones into the church and mm. and to maybe see them get saved and then um you know that was supposed to be kind of like this catalyst event to to facilitate that and so you yeah. you know you're encouraged you know, bring your unsaved loved ones into the church invite them we have a rival coming up next month you know so and so is going to be coming and it wasn't it wasn't this like um unplanned outpouring of the holy spirit per se right, but right. rather more more like an outreach effort yeah, yeah, yeah. So like almost like a program you plan and you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're expecting God to do something big, but it's not like a, you know, sovereign move of God where you're like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? How did this happen? This is incredible. Um, In fact, um, one time Stacey and I were driving down from, from, I think, Dothan to the Panama City Beach, and we were driving through my, my hometown, uh, Bonifay, Florida, and we were passing the marquee sign for First Assembly of God, Bonifay, Florida. And the marquee just, it just said, revival canceled. <laughs> and we had, we, we had to stop and we, we took, we took a picture of it because it was like, it's so, it's just a deep South thing that you can say, oh, yeah. the revival is canceled. It just, it just yeah, had those right, two right, words, right. revival canceled. Yeah. Uh, so we thought that was funny. I, I hate it what? for them that there was some kind of circumstances that canceled the revival, but yeah. it's just, it's just a different paradigm. When you look at revival, like they did in the deep South, it's like, it's, a, it's sure. an event. It's a week long uh, right. effort. So it's funny. Well, and it's kind of funny. I think we have to unhinge that word from so many, you know, associations that we have. If you've grown up in the South or you've grown up, you know, in the U S mm-hmm. specifically, or you've grown up in certain tribes, but so a general definition of revival is, you know, it's where we get the word revive, right? Something is dead. Something is asleep. It gets spiritually awakened from a state of dormancy or stagnation. So you can have an individual revival where you're kind of spiritually dry or spiritually asleep. And so 
as an individual, you experience a, a revival. Um, I know I've been through seasons in my spiritual life where I was dry, I was empty, I was maybe more in love with the world, I was kind of in bondage to sin, and God just kind of took me through a season where, man, I just fell in love with the Lord, um, you know, fell in love with the Word of God, um, started getting honest about my sin and confessing my sin. And so that's like the true sense of it, right? <clears throat> I think sometimes, though, when we think about a revival, we think of it in more of a corporate sense. So it's not just an individual experiencing a revival. It's kind of a big group corporately, a church, a community, a you know generation experiencing a revival. And historically, and we'll, we'll look at this more as we get into the, the historical revivals, you kind of see it in, in both ways. You see God moving and doing a work in an individual and then you also see God moving corporately, like in the life of the church, for revival. But you're absolutely right. I mean, some people, when they hear the word revival, all I think of is revival meetings. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's a reason for that, and we'll, we'll get into the history of it. And it's so interesting how we as Americans, we kind of have this um, generational understanding of things that we're not quite sure where it came from or how it started because it just kind of got passed down generationally. But like, mm-hmm. Gabe, because you grew up in the Assemblies of God, because, um, you know, I, I kind of have roots in the Wesleyan and Methodist movement, and then later in the Charismatic movement. Um, when you look back at the Second Great Awakening, when you look back at the Azusa Street, when you look back at the Jesus People movement, like, it's understandable why, growing up in the 80s and 90s, our generation would go, oh, yeah, revival is just a long series of church services. Because <laughs> at one time, you know, you had Methodist camp meetings or you had, you know, the Azusa Street Revival, which was this series of continuous meetings that went on and on and on and on and on that birthed all these different denominations. Um, yeah, and so even the, the format of a revival meeting, it being in a rented assembly hall or a tent it is just so connected in the minds of some people with the move of God. Like if we're going to do this, it can't be in the church. It has to be in a tent, which I just think is so funny now. Cause it's like, Nope, nothing happens in tents, <laughs> but you, you, you know, I, I was having a conversation with uh, someone the other day and they were talking about wanting to do a church service for all of the different churches in the community. And they're like, yeah, we need it to be in a tent. And that person's like, well, why does it need to be in a tent? And they're like, well, I just, I don't know. I just, if we're going to do a, a revival service, it has to be in a tent or it's not really a revival. And it's just kind of like, <laughs> that's not in the Bible or at all. You know, that's just kind of a collective generational understanding of it, which I think is interesting. Yeah. But there's another sense in which this word is used, which we're really going to be exploring. And that is a sovereign move of God that results in a wave of increased spiritual interest or renewal in the life of a church, congregation, or society, and it has a local, national, or global effect. So I say sovereign move of God intentionally. There are some folks that would say, no, revivals are the result of people planning it, people praying for it, people being intentional about it, and I would not disagree with that. I would say that God honors prayer. 
but also I would say that like you can't fabricate or manufacture something like that. Right? I mean, how do you view that? Is it yeah. something you just kind of plan for yeah, and then... Yeah. Well, it seems like historically speaking, I hate to get ahead of ourselves here, but historically speaking, when you look at revivals or, or movements that have been labeled revivals, at least I should say, mm-hmm. um, it seems to, like true revivals I'm talking about, seem to come after an increased access and um, and in knowledge of the Word of God and um, prolonged intercession. Um, so it seems like more uh, biblical, biblical, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Biblical literacy is, mm-hmm. is one, at least one of the prerequisites to a, a deep lasting move of God that you would maybe later call a revival. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's not necessarily planned. Um, that mm-hmm. might just come from someone who illuminates the deep truths and convicting principles of the word of God and that reverberates mm-hmm. throughout that society. Right. So people that are revivalists or study revival history um, often point to revivals to say that moves of God like this kind of worked and served to restore the church after a period of decline. And so revivalists will kind of point to um, you know, the ebbs and flows of the church's cultural influence in a particular society. Um, you know, we'll talk about the Jesus people movement in the 1970s and 60s. And, you know, you can kind of see the hippie movement in California kind of cresting and falling and the summer of love kind of turning into the summer of chaos with the Manson murders and Woodstock and, you know, it's, some really dark things with drug use. And then from there, you had all these washed out hippies that wandered into a guy named Chuck Smith's church in Costa Mesa, California. And then a move of God breaks out and all these washed out hippies Mm -hmm. that are just like totally hungry for something more experience the power of the Holy spirit and experience the gospel. And it, you know, changes the trajectory of uh, the church in, North America as we know it. Um, and so that's, that's, an, that's a trait of revival that we'll talk about. But, but a big question before we just get started is this. Are they biblical? This is the Beards and Bible <laughs> podcast. So we're talking about revivals. So are they biblical? So Gabe, you're yeah, our I would resident. Say, I would say definitely. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say definitely because well, you see... Um, you think there's a delay. We we keep cutting Um, ourselves off. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I think, I think definitely you see that there's, there's, there's people straying from God. There's people in, I would say, you know, obviously Israel being the center point of it all. There's, then they return to God. And that is oddly enough, sometimes after a preordained set amount of time where God's like, I'm going to put you in exile and wait for you to repent collectively. And it's going to be a, it's going to be this long till you do that. Your punishment needs to last Mm -hmm. this long. Your exile will be this long and then I'll bring you back. Yeah. yeah, I think we're going to talk about the times of Ezra. Yeah. 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 So that's how I was trying to go when we kept cutting each other off, but um, you're more of our our resident old Testament guy. Um, 
talk about Ezra for a second. I know I've got stuff written in the show notes, just an outline of the book of Ezra, but lead us through like what, what yeah. was happening at Ezra? Why would a Bible scholar say, okay, Ezra really tells the story of revival amongst the people of God? Yeah, Ezra kind of follows the, the exile and the subsequent returning of the people of Israel back into the land. And mm-hmm. uh, Israel being in the land that God established for them and kind of set boundaries around that if they're in the land, it's kind of the eclipse of his will that it's like they're, they're holy. And then they're in the holy land. They're obedient to his word. They get to stay in the land. It's kind of like a son in your house. You know, if you can, mm. you can live in my house as long as you want, as long as you obey the rules. But in 586, um, 587, the Babylonians were used as an instrument of God's divine punishment against the people of Israel for their disobedience and they were exiled into Babylon. And, um, and Ezra writes about this and how, you know, the Babylonians, you know, eventually took them captivity. Um, and then in seven, 70 years, they were in captivity in Babylon in exile. And then a group led by Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, uh, <laughs> of about you, 50, yeah, yeah, about 50,000 people returned in 539. And then Ezra kind of talks us through um, the rebuilding of the temple um, and the people's kind of reestablishing themselves in the land. Um, And it's really interesting because uh, we see this picture of increased biblical literacy when Ezra and they, you know, they're, they're renovating the temple, they're rebuilding the temple. They find this, the, the, a copy of the Torah. Mm. They begin to read it publicly. And it says all the people began to repent and weep and mourn. And uh, then he gets to the part about the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's like, no, we're here in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. We have to rejoice. We have to celebrate. We have to set up, you know, Sukkot and celebrate this holiday. Um, so it's it's an interesting story. It's this very, like, raw moment of Israel's revival. And you see mm-hmm. the elements of revival j- played out where you see when they're in Babylon, you see prayer and you see psalms being written and and pleas for mercy and repentance, and then they're brought back into the land, you see biblical literacy increase, and then you see collective repentance and and mourning and um, uh, kind of this grieving process. And then you see joy. And uh, all of that produces, and this is key to it, all of that produces prolonged obedience to the Word of God. Yeah. So and that's one of the fruit. things, one of the issues I have with some of these, some of these other revivals is that you see a flash in the pan kind of movement led by a very charismatic person. But as soon as that charismatic person gets taken out of the equation, the people that were um, there and attending and faithful to that, there is no prolonged change in their life. That's, that's right. really observable on a, on, a, on a grand scale. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's so key to point out that in the book of Ezra, you know, we see repentance. We see that on a mm-hmm. corporate level. We see Ezra as kind of the leader of it, leading the charge in repentance. He's the one that's grieving and tearing his clothes and crying out to God and confessing his, you know, sins along with the people of Israel. And then, like you said, there's a there's fruit. There's sustained long-term repentance and sustained long-term obedience to the commands mm-hmm. of Yahweh in 
keeping Feast of Tabernacles in, you know, doing the things that God has called them to do, but not intermarrying with the people and, and things like that. And, and so you have this account of kind of national revival amongst the people of Israel after God's judgment, after a season of dryness and disobedience and kind of apathy and indifference among the people. And so, hmm. you know, this is not the only time you see that in the Old Testament. That's probably the most um, noticeable account that you see in the Old Testament. Um, and then you go into the New Testament, and, you know, in the Gospels, there's John the Baptist. And, and we forget that John the Baptist, um, the Bible uses the term, you know, crowds or multitudes to describe the people that came out. And some scholars speculate, I mean, thousands, maybe upon hundreds of thousands of people coming out to hear John the mm -hmm. Baptist at the River Jordan. Mm -hmm. And he's calling for national repentance for Israel in preparation for the coming Messiah. Mm -hmm. And and people are getting baptized. So that, that would have been a very unique thing for uh, for Jews to go, well, I'm going to get baptized. Because like you, as a Jew, would have gone into like a mikvah to purify yourself. But a baptism was only for like a, a non-Jew entering into the Jewish faith. Am, am, am I getting that right or what am I missing there? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, if what they what they thought about it when they were going down into the waters, um, you know, it could be that they were, you know, the, the, the Jordan River being very symbolic of like when they left uh, the, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and crossed through the Jordan to come into the, the promised land. It could be that they were in a way reenacting that and saying, okay, I'm going to cross over again mm -hmm. and, and renew my faith to the God of Abraham. There was a, there was a huge movement of Hellenization of Jews at that time right. um, that was pulling people into the Greco-Roman culture and, and idolatry that came along with that. So by going to see John the Baptist, John the, the immerser down in the banks of the Jordan River, what you're maybe saying is like, you know, I'm going to return to my roots and I'm going to recommit myself to my faith. In a sense, right. I'm going to be born again. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it wasn't just, you know, the the book of Matthew, I believe, talks about there were, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees that were there. So the, the movers and shakers <laughs> of the denominations of the day showed up and like, let's check this out. Who is this guy? Right. And John mm. the Baptist calls him mm -hmm. out, you know, uh, tells them to repent that the axe the axe is already laid at the the foundation of the tree and they're going to be cut down right when you love to have been there that's kind of awkward yeah <laughs> he's like yeah i think he's talking about those guys yeah, yeah. um even <laughs> gentiles were there some romans showed up uh probably god-fearing romans right um those who are interested in the jewish faith um but at any rate it was a widespread national uh revival that was it was a lot. I mean, it was it was a big deal. People would have known mm -hmm. the name of John the Baptizer, John the Immerser, um, in mm -hmm. in that revival, if you will. And then um, we have the day of Pentecost in Acts two and Acts one. And um, of course, this is the start of the church. And someone would say, "Well, I don't know if that's necessarily a revival," but I mean, if you look at it, the disciples are spending ten days in prayer waiting for a move of God, the promise of the Father Jesus had given them. Then we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then we see the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There is a 
powerful declaration of the gospel. There is conviction power present. We see 3,000 people baptized and added to the church. People converted every day afterwards because of the unity of the people. So it's not just like a one and done, hey, I got the liver quivers there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Like it, it keeps going, right? There's fruit that's long-term. Mm. The church grows, the church spreads throughout the entire region. And, and, and like this explosion of Holy Spirit power happens on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. But it's not just the episodic mm. experiential thing. It continues, it's sustained kind of long-term. And so I think that's significant to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. So, how were these revivals in the Bible maybe different from some of the ones that people talk about experiencing today, or maybe growing up experiencing? Oh, that's a good question. It seems like, seems like um, most recently, anyways, revivals seem to be centered around the ability of one person to stir up others with with his, uh, you know preaching and, and rhetoric and, you know, it's, it's, mm. uh, centered around the personality of a person. Um, I would say that's maybe with some of the instances that the things that the, the media has called a revival, um, mm. that, that seems to be this, the focal point is, is a, is a person in their preaching, um, or music or, um, you know, it just, it, it isn't, it isn't like this, uh, like you said, a long prolonged reverberating, uh, in other words, like you go to some of these places that were hosting these revivals uh, in the early 2000s, like 2008, 2009, you go to there, you go there now and there are no lasting effects. If anything, right, it's almost right. like a, uh, it's kind of like a cringe, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a big difference. Yeah. And we'll talk as we get into the second great awakening episode, there is a term that sociologists and church historians use to describe that effect. It's called the burnt over effect. And so in hmm. upstate New York, there was something called the Burnt Over District where revivalists would come through and kind of do their thing and people would either get really jaded and burnt out and distrusting of organized religion because of that or people would get into the extremes and fringe groups of organized religion. And many people credit, and this is, this is a very interesting legacy and we'll take a look at this as we get into the Second Great Awakening, but many people credit the Second Great Awakening with the birth of movements like the Mormons and the LDS Church, um, hmm. and which is a super interesting connection, but we'll talk about that. But I can see how you know, people get addicted to the high-octane, hyper-experiential, mm-hmm. very emotive uh, you know, experience of revival, and so going to a local church and submitting to local church leadership and you know, the the day-to-day drudgery of being a disciple of Jesus just kind of seems boring, right? Yeah, and I think I think sometimes people get this idea that when revival, true revival when it happens, um, it's, it's going to mean that everyone's going to quit their jobs and just go live and sleep in this church and experience the presence of God just nonstop in this church. And there's always going to be like synthesizer playing in the background and <laughs> you're going to be able just to live off of the the, you know, the, the soup, the soup kitchen that's there. And mm-hmm. it's like, and they just want to be in that and bask in that, you know? And, and it's like, right. well, and I, I tell people every, every so often I tell, especially men, I say, one of the godliest things that you can do as a man, one of the holiest things that you can do is to work a, work a job 
be at a job, do a good job at it and be indispensable to your employer, make a paycheck, come home every day, be a kind and loving husband and, and, and father to your children, and then go to bed and wake up and do that all over again. Right. And be, be faithful, be faithful to your wife in the midst of that. And then See, lead your, lead your family. Yeah. See, I, I'm grateful for our heritage. I'm grateful for the Assemblies of God. I'm grateful for the Wesleyan charismatic heritage that I came up through. But one mm-hmm. deficiency that I will just throw out there is there was so much of an emphasis on revivalist culture that mm-hmm. responsibility and commitment as an everyday disciple of Jesus sometimes was painted as people who were dry, boring, faithless. Do you think that's a fair mm-hmm. characterization of some of the um, movements maybe we oh, came to? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or you just you just gave up on a move of God, like right. You know, if you work if you work a nine to five job and but but you're raising godly children, um, you know somehow you're like a second second class citizen in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're there to support the people who are who are the movers and shakers in the kingdoms. But it's like that that, that right there, I'm I'm more than ever convinced that you working that nine to five job and raising godly children and being faithful to your wife, you are you have been revived. You are living right. the right, revival right, 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 right. lifestyle, yeah. and you're living a very, very godly lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that as we get into it. But um, common characteristics mm-hmm. of revival. So we've already looked at kind of some biblical revivals, but um, there's a guy named Jeff Waugh. He wrote a book called Revival Fire, and he looks at just biblical revivals. And, man, you could go through all the way, you know, to the book of Joshua. One could say there was a revival at the end of the book of Joshua, we see miniature revivals happening through the book of Judges. You know, people come back to the Lord, and then, you know, a generation later, they <laughs> go back to doing their own thing. But his nine similarities is, he says, they occurred in times of moral darkness and national depression. Each began in the heart of a consecrated servant of God who became the energizing power behind it. So I would say, yes, I noticed that. I think there is an instrument that God uses, but I think I would caution someone from placing so much emphasis on an individual that we forget that it's actually God that, that moves. Right. But yes, I would acknowledge that there is, mm-hmm. there are the Ezra's, there are the John the Baptist, there are the, the Joshua's and then the judges. I, I, I would acknowledge that. Yes. There are the Peters on the day of Pentecost. Um, three, each revival rested on the word of God. So yes, we kind of noted that the word of God is emphasized. Four, all resulted in return of worship of God. Five, each witnessed the destruction of idols. Six, there was a recorded separation from sin. Seven, the people returned to obeying God's laws. Eight, there was a restoration of great joy and gladness. And nine, each revival was followed by a period of national prosperity amongst the people of God. Um, Which Mm. is true. You you see that. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. So that's kind of biblical revivals, but then as we look throughout church history, and somewhere in the neighborhood, I looked the other day, between like the 1700s and modern times, revivalists point to about 200 uh, historical revivals that are, you know, so noteworthy that there's literature published about it. Um, most of it would be in kind of Western countries, so the UK, the US, 
places in Europe, um, many of them that are probably the most dramatic and the most just intense and crazy um, happen in developing countries, though. So mm-hmm. Uganda, where you and I have done ministry, there was a very, very notable revival in the year 1990. Um, a lot of revivals happened in South and Central America that sometimes don't get reported on. Um, man, and these are ones that, like, numerically, those that happen in developing countries put the ones that we say that have happened in the U.S. to shame. I mean, so many people come to faith in Christ. So many people um, show up to, to worship, and, and it changes the trajectory of the church in those nations like crazy. But um, revivalists kind of point to some of the same attributes. First is timing. Usually it happens in times of spiritual and moral decline, so just like it did in the Bible. Um, and that timing leads believers to times of intense prayer. So prayer is always kind of connected to that. Um, the word, so there's always the preaching and reading of God's word and true revivals. Now, Gabe, you mentioned the revival we're going to talk about later in the city of Lakeland, where you were living at the time when it broke out. It was not a revival that included the preaching of the word at all. Mm. So, and so one could say that maybe that wasn't a true revival in terms of the biblical text test of it and kind of the church history test because it did not involve the preaching or reading of God's word. So we'll kind of keep that in mind. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Obviously the Holy Spirit is involved in uh, revivals throughout church history, powerful moves of the Holy Spirit, conviction, the glory of God. Um, The most notable trait though, I would say is reformation and renewal for it to be a revival has to produce lasting fruit. And lasting fruit, you can point to in in a lot of historical revivals, new ministries being founded, um, people being called to to the ministry. So a lot of pastors and missionaries get their start in revivals. Um... And the communities and societies that they're around experience kind of a, a reform of morals. More and more people come to faith in Christ. And so, like, the fruit of it is long-term. It's not just an episodic, hey, I went, you know, I experienced this crazy Holy Spirit thing, and then, wow, that was cool, can't wait to go back. I mean, no, it's like, it changes people's lives forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, here's where we get into some interesting waters, Historical revivals throughout church history commonly report strange and sometimes even bizarre manifestations. So things like fainting or groaning prayer or miracles. And these vary by culture, these vary by denomination, but nonetheless, these tend to show up in these types of things. And then revivals are usually messy. There's a lot of controversies that swirl about miracles, abuses, excesses, suspicions, theological disputes, things like that. And then most church historians and revivalists and sociologists say about true moves uh, like this, whether they're from God or not, but they're, they're cyclical. They inevitably crest and decline. They don't last forever. 
So anything on that list that you would say, hey, that's missing or I don't agree with that or does that look pretty textbook? No, it's pretty, uh, pretty exhaustive. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So let's talk about interesting stuff. What about some of the uh, bizarre manifestations we talked about? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> let's let's get into this. <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. So, um, often these revivals report an increase of manifestations against the Spirit. So, you read about that in First Corinthians 12, right? Tongues, mm-hmm. healing, prophecy, miracles, that kind of thing. That's not unusual for us as, as Bible-believing Christians who would consider ourselves continuationists. We still believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, that's not that unusual. We're like, okay, you know, that's in the Bible. God can do that. Um, a lot of times manifestations of spiritual deliverance, so demons being cast out, that kind of thing. You know, again, if you've got a framework for understanding that, that's not that unusual. But where you get into some odd waters is there are many other kind of extra biblical manifestations that seem to accompany many of these movements. Not all, but a lot mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is one that Gabe and I are probably very familiar with because we grew up in a more Pentecostal background, and that is when people fall seemingly under the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is called in many Pentecostal circles being slain in the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Gabe, I would imagine you probably grew up seeing this quite a bit. (laughs) Yes, yes. In fact, we had... had, uh a special tub and near the stage of church, uh, maybe, maybe right next to the piano that was full of, uh, like fleece blankets, uh, mm. that were folded up in case a, a woman wearing a shorter skirt were to, were to get slain in the spirit. Uh, one of the ushers would then run over and grab one of the blankets and, and lay it over the legs of the slainy as she's the laying slainy. there <laughs> <laughs> over the slain. Yes, um, but this is I got a funny story to share real quick with this and I hope yeah, they do don't it. mind me sharing this but I had um, there's a there's a family that attends our congregation and, and uh, in, you know we, we don't the way you know messianic congregation works it's usually not very charismatic it's usually not very like there's not a people being slain in the spirit there isn't this stuff it's not it's mm-hmm. it's more of a kind of a, a Baptist flavor let's just be honest but yeah. um, uh, we had a we had a, a family that attends on a regular basis. Well, their mother, who was older, she was in her 80s, I think maybe yeah, maybe 80s at the time, she visited. She'd never been to a Messianic congregation, was kind of skeptical, you know, of it all. And and uh, we had we had a maybe a, a music guest that that week uh, that was playing music, very, very talented musicians and stuff. They were leading worship, I think. And a, a separate woman, not connected to their family whatsoever, uh, takes it upon herself to go ahead and just like lay prostrate on the ground and is worshiping laying prostrate on the ground, um, which is unusual for our, our usually mm-hmm. our corporate worship. But you know we didn't feel compelled to like have her stand up or anything. That's totally fine. Like if you want right, to lay right, down, right, and, right. as long as it's you know done in modesty and humility, like just go ahead and lay down and prostrate and sing. That's fine. But um, yeah. it was it was 
it was funny because um, the the family was looking at the woman and thinking, "Oh boy, what is what is our mother going to think about this? She's she's already <laughs> on edge, you know, and very skeptical." <laughs> and here's this woman laying down on the ground, uh, just completely prostrate, singing. And um, so at the end of the service, they're driving home, and uh, they ask the mom. They say, "So yeah, so what did you think?" And she's like, "Well, it's good." to see people are still getting slain in the spirit. <laughs> They're like, okay, that's not the reaction that we were expecting. Uh, yeah, didn't think that's so. what that was, but that's really funny. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you grew up in movements like Gabe and I did, unfortunately, this was almost like a expectation people had during prayer time at the altar. Like you almost had to fall. And if you didn't fall, then God didn't really touch you. Which is a very strange, mm-hmm. in my mind, a very strange uh, association that Pentecostals often have with God meeting you in a place of prayer. Like, it has to involve you falling to the ground, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that is a generational, like, you, you learn that from somewhere, but you're not quite sure how you learn that or where you learn that. Um. But if you start researching this activity of people falling under, supposedly because of the power of the Holy Spirit, this goes back all the way to the colonies during the First Great Awakening. And you see Hmm. this occurring in the revivals of Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. And so his assessment was a person may fail bodily in strength because of a fear of hell and conviction by the Spirit, or because of a dew of a foretaste of heaven. So due to all those things, that's why somebody falls over. Like they're just, they're so overcome by just an experience of the supernatural that they just, their, their bodily strength gives way, right? Um, hmm. The revivalist John Wesley, of course, he, he ministered mainly in England. He recognized that falling to the ground was a manifest, manifestation from God. He said it was legit, many instances in his ministry, but... Um, Revivalist George Whitfield, which would have been probably the most preeminent evangelist in the colonies during the First Great Awakening, he was he was Billy Graham before there was a Billy Graham. Uh, he criticized Wesley for permitting it, so he didn't think it was legit. He thought it was ridiculous hmm. and showy. And and then in the Second Great Awakening, it shows back up during the Kentucky revivals, like the Cambridge revival and Methodist camp meetings. So there was a lot of Methodist meetings where this was happening. Um, so people were falling under God's power. I think this is really funny. This is an article I read from Paul L. King. And, of course, this was kind of a Methodist phenomenon. The Methodists were the crazies. But uh, it's noteworthy that <laughs> at one Methodist revival, some people who were falling under God's power included some Baptists. So that was that was noteworthy to note that wow it wasn't just the Methodists right. So um, Charles Finney, Second Great Awakening guy, a lot of people reportedly fell out under the power of God in his revivals. The Welsh revival in the 1850s, in the 1860s, Andrew Murray was a revivalist. Uh, they actually started to speak out against it, like stop falling. This isn't about that. So this is kind of a controversial thing that went back a long time. But you nevertheless tend to see this behavior show up in a lot of revival circles, 
some people saying this is ridiculous, this is not of God, other people saying this is of God, leave him alone. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, for hmm. better or for worse, good, better, ugly, it's there. Now, I, I love uh, I love church memes. People send me church memes a lot, um, and we have we actually have this like group text between several guys, and we share church related memes. Um, but someone just sent me this. Uh, I think it was yesterday. If if you're watching on YouTube, you can see this. But it's is it backwards? <laughs> but it's um oh wow. I'm making my I'm making my second Star Trek reference. You are my goodness in the, in the episode. <laughs> but it's basically um. The crew of the USS Enterprise, they are walking into this foreign spaceship. For those who are not able to see this meme, they're walking into this spaceship, and there's some kind of weird sound that's playing over the intercom system in the spaceship, and it's causing all of the crew to kind of, like, convulse and, like, kind of <laughs> fall to the ground, except for Spock. And Spock is just standing there because he, he is not influenced by the sound. And Spock is just standing still. He looks like a soldier, just like super confused, like what is going on with you guys? And it says at the top, um, when you're the only Baptist at a charismatic worship service. <laughs> so you can enjoy Your that. Your manifestation. If you have are... church memes. Yeah. Yeah. If you have church memes, you'd like to send me, email them to me. I would love to see them. Yeah, um, it's great. my favorite thing ever. Yeah. So you see falling under the power of the spirit, supposedly being slain in the spirit. Um, another bizarre manifestation that shows up at some of these revivals is a phenomenon called holy laughter, where people break into seemingly uncontrollable fits of laughter. Now, this is this was big during kind of modern charismatic revivals, so the Toronto Blessing, Brownsville, um, and so I would say that that that's probably the most controversial uh, of some of the modern charismatic revivals, but. There's also accounts of this kind of behavior happening at Jonathan Edwards meetings during the First Great Awakening in the 1700s in the, uh, in the colonies, in John Wesley's meetings in England and in Methodist camp meetings. So that's not necessarily a new phenomenon. It's very controversial, but it's been around for a while. Um, you hear reports of physical sensations, people trembling, shaking, convulsing, uh, putting out strange sounds, strange behaviors. Again, a lot of this was reported in Jonathan Edwards' meetings of the First Great Awakening. This was supposedly very prevalent during Methodist camp meetings of the Second Great Awakening. And again, in a lot of modern charismatic revivals. Um, you hear reports of people falling into trances, having visions, having dreams. This was very common as part of the early Methodist camp meetings, also part of the Welsh revival in the 1850s. So, I mean, you, you can... Man, go back in church history and research it and study it, and in almost every revival movement the past 300, 400 years, there's always been strange manifestations, and they've always been the subject of a lot of controversy. In that, mm -hmm. they were not universally accepted as being from the Lord. And there's always kind of been a three-pronged understanding of these phenomena, um, and critics of these revivals have always said, okay, so... There's, there's probably more going on. And so the first prong of understanding it is this is all of the flesh. This is all just attention-seeking behavior. These are people caught up in the hysteria and psychological fervor of these meetings. And so everybody starts laughing. So what do you do? You start laughing, right? Everybody around you is trembling and shaking and convulsing. So what do you do? You tremble, you shake, you convulse. Everybody around you that's getting prayer, 
the minister lays his hands on them to get prayer, what do they do? They fall out. So what do you do? You fall out. And and you're kind of caught up and swept up in it. You you don't really know that you're doing that, but you kind of are because this thing called groupthink and kind of um you know the the psychological control that a crowd has over an individual is very powerful. And you see this in concerts, right? So it's not necessarily hey, that's a supernatural thing. That could just be a very powerful psychological effect, right? Yeah. Uh, the second prong of trying to understand these manifestations is it's not of the flesh, it's of the devil. So this is demonically inspired laughter like you see in the Philippian slave girl who is mocking Paul and mocking Silas, right? And that's why people are laughing. They're full of demons and the demons are trying to disrupt the preaching of God's word. Um, it's demonically inspired twisting and jerking and critics have noted that this is similar behavior that you often see in Hindu cult rituals. So if you look up the Kundalini cult, um, there's often worshipers in the Kundalini cult, which is a Hindu cult that look eerily similar to Pentecostals and charismatics at these revivals who twist and jerk and laugh and, and do things like that. Um, so that's one understanding. And then the third understanding is obviously people say, well, no, that's of the Spirit. It's legitimate. It's real. These are real manifestations of the Spirit of God. We may not be able to explain it, and we may only be uncomfortable with it because they're different and weird, but that's, that's God. We don't put God in a box. So, Gabe, of those three options for making sense of that, which, which do you kind of lean towards and why? Oh, great. Oh, thank yeah, you, you for this. Spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I gotta say, man, it's like so, some of those things are like the 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 jerking, the uncontrollable, like convulsing for days and days and days. Like, I don't know, man, that stuff is weird. Um, yeah. the, I, I don't know if it's connected to the Kundalini thing, but like, I just can't, I can't get into that. I can't get behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I understand like having moments of deep grieving and um, and and collective repentance and maybe even weeping, uh, that stuff. But I, I think, you know, every, every revival, just like we talked about John the Baptist, every revival, every move of God has its Pharisees that are standing up on the, the, the bank of the, the river observing and critiquing mm-hmm. and trying to sort out if it's legitimate or not. Um, and I don't want to be guilty of that, but at the same time, we are called to be discerning and testing of the spirits. Right. Um, so, so I, I think, I think there have been some bad revivals, quote unquote, that have produced some good, but then I don't know, and I, I can't see it from a 30,000 foot view, but have those instances, um, <laughs> Lakeland, have they, have they <laughs> produced more bad, have they produced more profaning of God's name than they have sanctified God's name and produced right. lasting cultural effects? And I don't know the answer to that, but um, I just want to, I, I don't know that I can pick one of these except just really encourage people to have your discerning caps on, um, look for the trademark of a good revival, and that is um, deep uh, intercessory prayer and deep prolonged teaching and subsequent adherence to the word of God. Right. 
Um, right. If there is the combination of the two of those and and the the and I always say I always say the um, time is the worst enemy of a false prophet because right. the false prophet will come into town. He'll prophesy falsely. And then you're just like, hey, let's wait. Let's wait. Time is your worst right. enemy. Let's wait. And um, I think that's the case with with revivals. It's like time is the worst enemy to a, to a false revival. Yeah. And I think looking back now, you know, having the luxury of seeing the aftermath and seeing the fruit of revivals, we can look and say, okay, so the aftermath of the first Great Awakening was a spiritual renewal in the colonies before, um, you know, the, the war of independence. And so America became a nation, you know, one would, one would make the argument America became a nation that was grounded on commitment and dedication to, uh, the Christian God. And some would even point to the first great awakening to kind of do that. You know, the aftermath of the Jesus movement, we talked about that, the aftermath of even Brownsville or, or some of these other ones. Um, but then we look at the aftermath of, of ones that kind of petered out, and we just go, man, there were all these people that were claiming these real, legitimate, transformative experiences of God, but some of them are not even Christians anymore. So explain that to me, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I look at these manifestations, I think now I am so weary of people saying, just because it's weird, it must be God. Right? Mm. Just because I fell mm-hmm. out at a revival meeting, man, I had a powerful experience with God. And I'm like, maybe, but why is that your litmus test? Because you, you could have you gotten caught up in psychological fervor, right? I'm, I'm not denying that, that God is powerful and like you physically um, you know, could grow weak at the knees if you're in the presence of God. I think we all would if we saw God, right? And so maybe mm-hmm. God manifested the Spirit in a powerful way and you felt that physically. Okay, I'm not denying that. But the litmus test of whether or not you really encountered God is not you had a weird experience. That makes sense? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I yeah. tend to think that I feel like, there's um, prob- Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, anytime one of us... I think anytime your your kids come in in the middle of a podcast, you have to take one of my kittens. <laughs> you, you heard my kids at so the door. <laughs> yeah, I can can yeah. hear them stirring. They're, they're right outside the um, door, scratching at the door, trying to get in. Yeah, it's, it's like a zombie apocalypse out there. Like yes. you can hear them, their little fingers under the yeah. door. Yeah. Listen, oh, man, Dad's doing feeling. something productive. Why don't we totally ruin it? Let's yeah. ruin Dad doing something productive. Yeah. 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 What I was saying is, though, I tend to think that in any revival movement, there's probably all three things happening. Yeah. Right? There's yeah, there's yeah, legitimate yep. experiences of the Holy Spirit that people are having that we may not be able to quantify, understand, or make sense of, but we're like, man, God's really working in that person, right? Um, we don't understand it. It kind of seems a little bizarre, but, man, God's really showing up and working and moving. Um, there are people that are just caught up in the fervor of the moment and they're trying to get attention and they're caught up and just, you know, doing what they think they're supposed to do because that's what everybody else is doing. And then there's probably some real demonic activity going that is there to disrupt, that is there to distract, that is there to deceive. So um, I think that's why we have to always make sure that 
our litmus test for testing a revival is not an emotional experience or it was weird, therefore it must be of God. So, yeah. All right. Well, I'm excited about this series. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, me as well. Yeah. You've already kind of told people how you feel about the Lakeland Revival, so I was waiting have I? Waiting have for I that though? episode? I think you have in one sense. Mm. Yeah. So um really excited. I, I think uh if you know about any of these revivals, or maybe you were at some of these revival services like Brownsville or Toronto or Lakeland or the Jesus People movement, or if you're 120 years old and you were at Azusa Street, um <laughs> send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So, uh, yeah, excited. It's going to be fun. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, don't forget, free kittens with the tattoo, (laughs) beers and Bible logo. (laughs) It's just going to be Sharpie. It's not really going to be a tattoo. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's going to be a really uh, shoddy tattoo job. But anyway. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.